Welcome back to It's Always Friday the 13th, the podcast that digs deeply into every single edition of the Friday the 13th franchise, including the crossovers, reboots, sequels, and so on. Right now, we are talking about Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday. I'm John Evans, and I am joined by Michael T. Kuchek. How are you, Mike? <laughs> uh, who, me? <laughs> I'm okay. And how are you, Vikram? I'm good. <laughs> no, <laughs> god damn it. And how are you, Vikram Wheat? I'm doing very well, John. Uh, celebrating Father's Day, uh, and which is still weird to say, but it does actually still apply to me. So, uh, yeah, it's good, to, it's a good day. What better way to celebrate Father's Day than talk about mass serial killers? Amen. Well, I mean, this is the first one that explicitly mentions Elijah Voorhees. So in a weird kind of way, it circles back around. Yes, and of course, Elijah Voorhees is Jason's dad. So you're right, Mike. It's quite appropriate. This film definitely stands out like a sore thumb in the entire filmography of this series. Uh, how is this one not like the others? That is a great place to start with this conversation. All I can say to, to preface this is that I saw it in the theater as a kid, and I wanted more of the Jason Voorhees that I was familiar with. I wanted you know, basically part four all over again, or at least new blood all over again. And instead I get this bizarre film and I was very disappointed by it at the time. And today watching it twice this last week, I would say I, I have warmed to its charms. And so that's where I begin. Uh, Mike, why don't you uh, give us your general feel? Okay. Well, I will have to say that uh, the sisterhood of traveling pants too. <laughs> It, the girls are back and crazier than ever. Wait, Mike, Mike, and, that's our other podcast. We're going to do uh, that tomorrow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> damn it. All right, flip through your notes. Reorient yourself. Okay. Let's on, go to wait, Vic wait, first wait, then. Wait, and find uh, we'll come back to you. Russell around. All right. Okay. <laughs> Vic, take it away. Um, I, I, what I wrote down in my notes is that this is the Halloween 3 of the franchise. Yeah, it 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 seems to have very little connection to the other films, except for the opening, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yes. Um, and uh, I mean, it's what what pained me about it, because, John, I agree with you. I think it does have some charms. But what pained me about it is that at least Halloween three is batshit crazy. Like if you were going to deviate from the franchise, they went in a completely different direction. They, you know, that the, there's a feeling of creative freedom to that movie, whether you like it or, or, or think that it works or not. That in this, I thought if you were going to deviate like crazy from Friday the 13th to, to tell some kind of story that, you know, you're, you've thrown off the shackles of Halloween or of a, a Friday the 13th one through, through uh, eight. Um, and what you decide to do is basically to rehash Shocker and the first power and, um, you know, I mean, this idea of the evil switching bodies. Um, it's the hidden. Of, the hidden. It's hidden. Yeah. It's just not the, it's, it's, 
it's not the most original way to go with it. Well, however, let me stomp the brakes on that. And I think it really is a value to take a look at the IMDb for all of those movies that you just named. I mean, because for all we know, this film informed all of those that would come after it. Well, I didn't, I hesitate, I did not mention uh, Fallen, the, uh, yeah. the Denzel Washington movie, which also follows the same formula. Which is definitely like 95, 96. Yeah, that's definitely post this. But uh, yeah. The Hidden but, is per- before this. The Hidden precedes this by a couple of years, and it's also a new line film. I would mm-hmm. bet. That, I would bet that Shocker and the First Power do as well. And it's just, I, it, it's Jason shedding bodies like a suit. I don't know. I if you would, if you had given it to me and said, "Look, we want to do something really interesting to wrap up the series," I would hope that I would have come up with a, a something more original than this. That said, sure. within the context of what they do, I think they actually do do some some uh, uh, interesting things. At least they actually say- do do. Yeah. Hey. I, I would say overall, this is the movie in which uh, the question becomes exactly how little va- Jason Voorhees can we have in a Friday the 13th movie? And that had come up in our conversation about five. And this is exponentially further down the road. Would you say now this is more of a this is more of something, I think, for a, a summation. But uh, would you argue that this is uh more successful than five or do you think that they failed to learn the lesson of five which is that any friday the 13th movie must feature jason Voorhees in all of his hockey mask uh, glory front and center i think that this film is absolutely the more successful approach or result to what we saw with eight and certainly five where it's not entirely successful but it's it's much more accomplished, both in terms of its filmmaking, production values, acting, script, than those films were. And while I agree with you that conceptually it's a very tired and weirdly random uh, conceit to turn this into a uh, body-swapping film, like that and Jason do not go together at all. But... I think that this is sort of the, you know, misshapen love child of concepts that could be interesting that we hoped those films would be in pushing things out in interesting directions. And, and we'll definitely get to that, the meta qualities and the stuff that's kind of like jaw-droppingly like, holy shit, I can't believe they just did that. I think that those type of things usually work in this film whereas they were more eye-rolling in the previous one this is i realize opening up a gigantic can of worms but i would say that the 90s were on some level ruled by west craven in terms of the horror genre i hmm. uh, i'm kind of pulling up titles right now and uh nightmare on elm street part two in which freddy uh possesses somebody was 1985 the first power is uh, 90. Uh, what was the other one that you mentioned, Vic? Uh, Shocker. Also Wes Craven. Wes Craven, 89. And uh, you know, we actually don't see Fallen until 98. So you know, I, I would say that Fallen is actually more, the pitch is more seven with a supernatural element, mm-hmm. and especially in vibe. 
But I mean, you know, we're kind of looking at a decade in which is basically like Wes Craven does something and everyone else does it for a couple of years and then rinse and repeat. And, you know, it's not lost on me that this is, I mean, John, as you had mentioned, this is the first, uh, you know, Friday the 13th that's a new line movie. And oh boy, is it a new line movie. And in yeah. so many ways, it is yeah. uh, indicative of the new line aesthetic of that era. And to be honest, I don't associate a single filmmaker with new line more than I associate Wes Craven. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, like his yeah. aesthetic. And- yeah, I, 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 Wes Craven kind of a, 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 you know consolidates the aesthetic, but the rest of it is actually kind of coming from the loose gestalt of just the people who were working for that that studio. Yeah, Bob Shea and uh, Deluke, Mike DeLuca, and yeah. their yeah. their fingerprints yeah. are all over this. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right, so let's uh, get into the film. Uh, Sean S. Cunningham returned to produce this film after directing the first one, of course, and having some producerial duties along the way. And as Vic alluded to, we open with some vintage music like uh, Harry Manfredini, Manfredini, rather. (laughs) I always mangle his freaking name, become a trope of the show. (laughs) Harry Manfredini. Uh, returns and at this point in the score he's just recycling the score from the uh, earliest films which puts you in the mood and I appreciated it and then we so see this I. I, I, mm-hmm. John just to jump in really fast I, yeah. you know the, the last two or three films we've seen you know uh, you know deviancies on the core musical aesthetic uh, from six seven and eight uh, in six and you know six and seven we we heard a lot of symphony fantastique and then in eight they're trying to kind of do the dollar store version. And in this one, they just kind of came straight back to the core. And I deeply appreciate that. Yeah, like they're trying to establish the mood and feel and with the visuals and the audio of like part four and earlier. Like core four is what they're trying to establish with this open. And so we have this vintage music, vintage Toyota convertible driving on the road. We have a regular, like a real road sign with Crystal Lake being four miles away, uh, setting the stage here. It feels much more like a Friday the 13th film than um, Jason Takes Manhattan. And you've got the creaking doors as this girl, this hot girl, is opening the door of a cabin and exploring it. Very old school in its look and the sound effects. We're with her POV for a jump scare, the bulb burns out the light bulb goes out above her head and we've got another jump scare with the door slamming by itself she looks kind of a little bit like Alyssa milano this girl i was kind of into it and here's the first sort of discussion point for me you guys can take it wherever you want but we have what is so obviously a mirror scare about to happen like we've seen the the language of this with the cutting of the shots and she closes a um medicine cabinet with a mirror on it and then she leans down and, and and picks something up and she stands up again and of course we're expecting jason in the mirror but they don't do it so i really appreciated that there's a fascinating youtube video it's like 20 minutes long of all the mirror scares in horror film. i've seen that yeah. yeah and so it's i agree that there's a certain that gives you a, a sense of competency that they're they're aware of that and they set you up and i found myself watching it kind of gripping my my seat waiting for it 
Yeah. And then when it doesn't come, it's almost a relief. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm impressed that they're able to generate tension without actually doing, you know, without actually doing anything. I well, tip the cap. Especially within that scene, we, we have not one, but two. We have a double non scare in which uh, she right. opens the mirror and then she closes it and then she uh, leans down and camera follows her down and camera comes back up to the mirror and again, it, it, nothing happens. So yeah. I, 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 the director has enough of a command of the cinematic language and has an understanding that the audience has enough of a command of the cinematic language to have a double non-scare using the negative space. And uh, the last time, weirdly enough, I've seen something like that is uh, Insidious 2. Hmm. In, which it, it, in which you're actually generating tension by playing on the audience's uh, own command of cinematic language, where I mean, we, we widen out the shot, we expect something to appear in that negative space, and it doesn't. We do this, the character turns around, and there's something, you know, there's negative space, and uh, no. Yeah, yeah but I, I found it very refreshing. But yeah. uh, there are two baselines in these films that we always compare them to each other by, and one is, of course, the violence, and the other is the sex and nudity and we immediately established that this one is not directed by a fundamentalist christian because <laughs> uh <laughs> our girl strips down and she's got kind of a weird body or just weird underwear i wasn't sure it was kind of i'm not sure what was going on there but uh she strips down and then jason soon thereafter i think he cuts the power or something she goes on alert it's very detail oriented. Like what we're watching in this scene is seemingly mundane. If you weren't in a horror movie, this girl who comes in, she flips on the lights and the light burns out. And so she has to go and get a new light bulb. And so she goes and she gets the light bulb and there's a ladder. And we see her climb up and put the new light bulb in. And this is all, I mean, they get the jump scares with the door closing and the, you know, because it's a Friday the 13th movie, you're sort of on the edge of your seat. Um, but what they're really setting you up for is this moment. So she she does this. She she puts in the new light bulb. She goes in. She's getting ready. You know, she's getting ready to take a shower, and then the light goes out again. And what that is is you know that she's just put in a new light bulb, mm. and so it's it's extra creepy because Jason pulls the pulls the power all the time. Um, it's he yeah. he may as well be an electrician for his ability to pull the power uh, at any given moment. And so I really appreciate it. I, I have in my former life been a uh, an office manager uh, <laughs> okay. and changed a lot of light bulbs. And I yeah. appreciated that the attention to detail that goes into that, that we're, we're watching this very mundane thing and it's all to set up that moment when the lights go out. And so yeah. you, you know that the lights didn't, the light didn't just pop again. You know that the light went out because something physically did it. Yeah, uh, Dick, uh, I, great I, point. I, I wholeheartedly have a deep love of the mundane becoming fraught. Mm-hmm. You know, in any, like, normal shit is suddenly creepy as fuck, you know, due to the, you know, the events that preceded it. And uh, I mean, that's kind of a perfect example. But, you know, the this entire sequence uh, leads us to the conclusion that... Um, the people who are hunting Jason Voorhees have kind of cracked the code of the, uh, the, the summoning ritual that you have to perform mm-hmm. in order to make this, this creature, the spirit, appear. 
Absolutely. He manifests because she goes through this and makes herself vulnerable. To me, this and several other aspects of the film remind me of Cabin in the Woods. Yes. I, I would say that this opening sequence is very, very much a proto-Cabin in the Woods. It's like, how do we lure Jason Voorhees out of the woods? I, I mean, yeah, oh, well, we, you know, it can't just be meat on a hook like a bear, so to speak. Yes, we have to go through, we have to have a pretty girl who goes through a dance and does certain things in a certain place. You know, it, it's a conjuring of the evil. And it's meta in a very Wes Craven kind of way. Yes, yeah. it is. So before we get into what happens next and what we're alluding to, I just want to talk briefly about the appearance of this Jason. Uh, he's got the wisps of hair here that you see sometimes in these latter-day Jasons, and I'm not a huge fan of that. He he has this sort of rumpled, unkempt, uh, but not entirely convincing look. And my take on this Jason is that it's as though it's as though the part four Jason did not die, and he hung around in the woods for about another ten years, becoming more misshapen and dirtier and his mask starts to wear out and he's just kind of like the um mid 50s letting himself go jason i wasn't a huge fan and his head is really weirdly lumpy what did you guys think about the look of this jason well it's interesting because this is i think alongside part six this is the first time that we just refuse to acknowledge what's transpired before. And it's the point that you make is, is a good one, John, because this could just be right after part four. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, they really, I mean, you can see that they threw aside the uh, uh, madness of part eight and said, look, we, we need to get back to brass tacks here. I think that freed them up to say, well, like, what does Jason look like? He's, he's, just gotten more decrepit. It does seem like a a more decomposed version of the Jason that we've the the zombie Jason that we've seen. No, he's not dead. Like I think decrepit is the word. You know, like this yeah. is sort of more like he's still alive, but he's just kind of run down and over the hill. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm gonna make a big statement here, and I, and this is my least favorite Jason of the series uh and and the lumpiness you know made me immediately think of cancer like he's fucking yeah. immortal like he's a morton joe you know <laughs> uh and his his mask uh has apparently been chewed down by rats to like <laughs> and almost like a little bit of a pie plate you know stuck on the front of his face and uh and it's uh less uh, I, I, I even five. It's it's less than five for me. Uh, it's even less than eight for me. Like I even five and eight had a game going. I just look at this Jason and I'm just like, man, this, this is the first Jason who I don't just think is cool on any real level. Yeah, I just got done saying that the um, oiled up Jason of Jason Takes Manhattan, who's always like glistening wet, was my least favorite Jason. I actually do think that he looks cooler than this knobby-headed Jason. So yeah, like, like, yeah, like drippy Jason at least conjures like some creep show-ish feel, whereas this one, I it seems like like a 
like makeup came in with a bold take and everyone's like, well, we've never seen that before, whether it was good or not. Right. Yeah. Right. So here's the biggest holy shit moment of the entire franchise for me. Cause I didn't remember this at all. And when this happens, uh, I just, the other night when I saw it, I was like, my jaw kind of dropped. The girl leads Jason into a paramilitary ambush. And suddenly all these floodlights click on and there's dudes rappelling down from the trees and everyone's blazing away with automatic weapons and shotguns and they throw a couple of grenades and they blow him to frickin' smithereens. And like I was talking about before, like this is an example of doing conceptual backflips to push the franchise in new directions. But for me, this one totally worked. How did you guys feel about it, starting with you, Vic? First off, John, I'm stunned that you didn't remember this. I mean, this is Me easily too. the most kind of standout memory of this film after uh, maybe Stephen Williams' as Creighton Duke. I can't wait to get to that. Yeah. But, um, uh, I mean, it's it's kind of where you had to go. Like, it's gotten to the point when they a moment after this scene when they recount that Jason Voorhees, you know, is, has probably murdered 87 people, uh, you know, with, with who knows how many more that aren't accounted for. Um, that if you were just going to keep making Friday, the 13th movies, at some point you have to acknowledge that Jason has murdered the equivalent of a small town. Um, and, and that people would have to respond appropriately. And so at least, you get this moment of like, all right, this exists in some vague version of a real world where eventually somebody would notice that everyone who's ever gone into, you know, Crystal Lake has been murdered brutally. It's weirdly satisfying. Like I actually kind of enjoyed this scene. I, I enjoy the way that it plays out that moment when the lights come on you. It really is that even remembering what happened, you sort of watching it and like, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, it's uh, I think it works. I think it's, I actually think this is the strongest scene in the movie is the the opening up to this point. I think I like this movie a lot more than you in general, but I totally agree that this this scene is a knockout. Mike, gentlemen, I would like to draw your attention to the fact that there actually already is another movie in which we have an established evil character in a franchise who, uh, in our opening scene causes a certain level of mayhem only at the plot beat to be shot down by a group of police characters only to have his spirit inhabit someone else. And that movie, my friends is Ninja three, the domination. <laughs> That's why you're part of the team, man. Because I could not have pulled that up with all the, all, all the time and energy in the world. Ninja I would not have gotten that either. Which guys came out in 1984. Mm. You know, that's kind of hard to track down. Like I want to see that film, but for at least quite some time that was sort of lost. I have rewatched that movie recently. I found it on YouTube. Nice. And it is an absolute delight. And, uh, and not to say that the, uh, the filmmakers were like, you know, our mandate is we're going to make Ninja through the domination. But, you know, there, uh, there, there is some road lane for this yeah. project, for the stake. Well, we've been seeing that, like, yeah, there's numerous, numerous films. There's nothing original about the 
basic concept here. But yeah, anyway, cool. after this, we've got a. Uh, I'm going to skip Duke watching this right now because let's talk about Duke when he really shows up. So we get to the opening title sequence, and this one drops the part whatever. You know, we're not part nine because, you know, it makes sense with New Line taking over the franchise. But this one is billed as we still have a colon, of course. You know, we still have a really long, unwieldy name. It's Jason Goes to Hell, colon, The Final Friday. So then we find out that his body has been transported to Youngstown, Ohio, which I guess is the federal morgue. And we have the um, acclaimed character actor Richard Gant wheeling in the body of Jason. And now we're establishing with several details that it's Jason's heart that is carrying the dark magic or the essence of his evil soul. And we drop the old score, and we introduce some new score, which is quite bad. Sorry, Harry. And this is the first time I want to point this out. We'll stop here for a second. Um, long list of character, uh, the actors' names. We have a cast billing in the opening sequence. I don't remember ever seeing that in any of these films where we get the names of the cast in the opening credits. And it's a very recognizable cast, at least to people like me and, you know, dorks like this so um what do you guys think about the opening sequence where we're intercutting between the credits and this autopsy being performed i think listen i think it uh i actually found it effective i think having someone like richard gant perform this scene actually matters yeah um there is some attention paid to the supporting characters here that you we haven't seen in a lot of the other movies i mean i again not to get too far ahead of ourselves but stephen culp uh, is a, a welcome presence in this, even in kind of a one-note smarmy character. Um, and uh, uh, I actually, the, the note that I made is that this whole scene feels to me, as we as we build to it, uh, as a, a, a physicalization of the idea of Jason calling Tommy Jarvis to him, for instance, in part six. And we've talked about this idea that Jason won't go away. This is an evil that is just going to manifest over and over and over again and can kind of reach out and pull whatever he needs toward him in order to, to continue killing. Um, and that that was executed in these subtle and sort of interesting ways in previous films. And here we get it just balls out on the screen, exactly a uh, uh, nail on the head, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, in some ways works because it sort of reinforces a lot of what we've said about the previous films, but the image of Richard Gant devouring the heart is <laughs> unusual, I guess I would say. Yeah, this Yo, was, I, for me, this was another huge what the fuck moment. He takes a bite out of that heart like it was a Big Mac. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and he really digs in that thing. And you know, I mean, throughout that sequence, I kept wondering, what did uh, makeup use? For, for that, for, for him to relish that, that, that meal so much. <laughs> that's acting for you. Right. Acting! That's, that's why you get Richard Gant. Vic, you, you are, again, to use the term, to hit the nail on the head. We are, uh, you know, the movies that beforehand had pushed out the mythology, cancelizingly so, are five and eight, but both of them are the most uh, inept films of the series. And this is the one where it's like, what if we pushed out the mythology of the series, but actually directed it well? Yes. You know, and I would say... And that got this, real actors to do it. Yeah, 
this is the one that I would say easily is the best shot of the series besides six. Like six, six in this one. Like like this this one has kind of a little bit of a early '90s new line house organ feel, but you know, whereas six has kind of a mid '80s music video feel. But well, it should be noted that they poured seven million into this, which at that time was by far the largest budget of any of these yeah. films, and then they but, surpassed it with Freddy versus Jason. In terms of pure slick studio level filmmaking six and nine stand head and shoulders above the others no doubt so in this open we also learn that jason's weight was between 230 and 240 pounds which maybe to vic and i seems a a little light like what do you think vic about that yeah i would i would agree that that's a little light i also to me the others the other scene that i i the line that i remembered from this scene was him saying in my professional opinion, this motherfucker's dead as shit. Yeah. Strike, the, strike that from the record. I love that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, uh, there's, there's one other thing that I, I would say is a commonality between this one and a uh, an earlier installment is uh, this one has the kind of gonzo out of nowhere but super awesome dialogue lines of seven. Yeah, where I mean, uh, uh, characters just kind of spout like really weird but funny shit like out of nowhere in this one. We're about to come to one of those lines, which I made special note of. Um, But before we get there, I want to note that uh, our coroner mentions that uh, Jason has fatty deposits in both his left and right atria. Hmm, Who knows? Maybe he should have been on some blood thinner, gotten some stints in there you know who knows but anyway he's got black viscous fluid that isn't blood in his heart and that ends up in our black possessed jason uh richard gant does in fact eat the big mac slash heart and become the avatar of the vessel of jason's wrath and he's a little bit zombie like and this scene is is fantastic because we know he's possessed, and then the other coroner comes in with a pizza and some stuff, some food because, um, yeah, it's 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 exhausting work um, cutting up a guy who's already in like twenty pieces. But I think uh, according to filmmaking, it cost it costs you about fifteen thousand calories to perform an <laughs> autopsy because I, I, so cinematically they're always eating a sandwich. You know, yes. and in this case, like like this dude is coming in with like wings and and you know little Caesars. Yeah, yeah, he's he's got a feast for if Jason's hungry, they could probably give him some too and have plenty <laughs> left over for Monday morning. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah. assistant coroner is apparently the screenwriter, from what I understand, and he apparently was so unprofessional as an actor that he kept blanking on his lines. But he's a writer, so he ad-libs this line. I'd like to take a big old crap on your mask. A big old mango-sized crap. (laughs) As he's enjoying being able to talk shit to the corpse of Jason for the first time. uh, Because Jason appears to be neutralized. And little does he know that his colleague is picking up this two-spike-like tool implement which our um, assistant coroner uh, identifies as a probe, and apparently that probe uh, ends the life of our assistant uh, coroner. But the cool thing about the visual here, even in the uh, theatrical cut, 
the possessed coroner rams the guy's face through the sort of mesh of this autopsy table and you only get sort of an you know an inkling of what's happening but it 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 kind of like grates his face like pushing a like a, a fruit through some kind of grilled implement and the blood just kind of pours out and it, it's quite disturbing. The last time we've seen Jason Voorhees in a, uh, in this setting was uh, at the beginning of four, as you guys may mm-hmm. recall. And uh, uh, similarly, the characters were very flippant and had a lot of very funny dialogue. Similarly, the characters also die, but uh, in not nearly so interesting ways. Yeah, yeah, and we see the reflection in the mirrored steel of a cabinet or whatever that Jason's image is clearly what is reflected. And so just to underscore the fact that he's now in this other dude's body and they go back out and there's some heavily armored guards out there, one of whom is played by Kane Hodder. And they ask if Jason is going to get up and walk around anytime soon. They ask the coroner who is now possessed by Jason, which is funny. And they, it's hilarious that he's passed them by. We're in his POV. He's just going to walk on by. And then Kane Hodder calls Jason a pussy. And the guy's POV (laughs) swings back around. We find out that he killed them. Well, I do find, I want to ask you guys about the mirror thing. Because what occurred to me is without that element, like if you if you replaced every instance of Jason Voorhees with, you know, Bill the Butcher or whatever serial killer, like you could almost disconnect this movie from Friday the 13th entirely. Yeah, I, um, I spent this entire watch wondering if this was uh, a screener coming in with such a radically new take that it was like, yeah, that's totally going to reboot the series. Or if this was the classic example of someone writing a spec and New Line coming in and going, can you rewrite this to do make this a Friday the 13th movie? Because, well, because it, it's funny because that, that opening scene is so discordant with what follows afterward that, yeah, if, that, if, you, if you tacked on that beginning to it to make it a Friday the 13th movie, um, it would it would work all of a sudden you go, Oh, like, you know, and then, and so it's only for most of the film up until the last couple of minutes, it's only these moments of reflection when we see Jason Voorhees in there, which doesn't make a ton of sense, but uh, that's the only connection that we have to Friday the 13th for most of the rest of the film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we spend a lot of this movie without Jason on the stage, but I think that they, again, Compared to five, they handle it a lot better. So from there, we cut to basically a hard copy type uh, current affair. If the old people in the audience remember these references, this cheesy syndicated news magazine type show, which is called American Case File. And it, it gives us some interesting expo about Jason. It tells us that he was born in 1946. He drowned at age 11. That he has 83 confirmed kills, scores of others probably. We learn that Elias is his father's name. And we also meet, officially, Creighton Duke, the bounty hunter. And if you want to talk about style and fashion, this guy's got a cool hat. He's got a cigar. He's got a nice, like, duster. This guy, he is the epitome of a bounty hunter. Yeah, he, I, I was watching this and thinking, 
if part seven is Jason versus Carrie, this one is Jason versus Django. <laughs> yes. Yes. He is an African American uh, and he's one of the highlights of the film, and you you know exactly what you're getting with this character when he says this, which is probably my favorite line in the entire movie. The cheesy news magazine reporter host guy asked him to play a word association game, and he says, Jason Voorhees, and this is Duke's response to that. A little girl in a pink dress sticking a hot dog through a donut. <laughs> We're going to talk about like early 90s uh, horror and early 90s filmmaking. Uh, you know, I, I think this is one of the first examples of, you know, a refer- a direct reference to television. That makes sense. Whereas, like, you know, the, the characters are on TV. There's a TV show talking about them. And, and this predates uh, Natural Born Killers. Yeah, one of the special things about this film is that it breaks that long-standing tradition of half the characters in the movie having no idea that Jason exists. And in this one, it's like he's practically a celebrity. He's practically Charles Manson, you know, like he's notorious and he's getting all kinds of publicity all the time. Uh and that's a fun new wrinkle. Well, that's what I meant when I when I was talking earlier about how this feels grounded in the real world in a way that other films don't. You know, that, that uh, again, 83 people have been murdered and, like, only now is the FBI getting involved. But, like, at least the FBI is getting involved and at least people are acknowledging that, uh, you know, there, there have been multiple mass murderers, uh, mass murders taking place at this, you know, in this one small town. Now, on the one hand, it is on some levels the most fantastical, whereas and yeah. he's not just undead, he's actually jumping bodies. But at the same time, we have uh, uh, that much of a real-world 1992 response to uh, a dude killing 83 people. So, you know, it's a, you know the, the more real, the more fantastical, and vice versa. So Duke uh, tells our news journalist that he will, for the sum of 500K, uh, deliver Jason to uh, you know, prove that he exists, that he is a body swapper, and destroy him for that sum of money. And he, he makes the claim, you get the mask, the machete, the whole thing. Yes, that's our multiple Jaws references over the yes. course of the, the franchise. I was, I was pleased to catch that one as well. It would be yep. funny if uh, 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 every time one of the possessed people across the mirror, we, we saw a shark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's an idea for a Jaws sequel. <laughs> Vic, get on it. Like, actually, that explains Jaws the Revenge a little bit, actually, if the heart of Jaws was passing to other sharks, you know. Ooh. I like it. I want to see draft first tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So we cut to a diner where... Uh, more central characters will be introduced and we're in the vicinity of crystal lake at this point. And this diner is cashing in and kind of the way that in Blair, Witch two, you start to see like merchandising and everything about the, um, the murders and the phenomena that happen, crass merchandising commercialism. Um, and in this case, they're making burgers that look like hockey masks and it by like, etching out the pieces of it to create the eye holes and the various holes in the front of the mask. 
it actually allows you to use that meat to create a second patty. And that's why our crass diner owner, whose name is Joey, I believe, is doing a two-for-one special. Joey is the clearest example that this uh, franchise is reminding us that these movies take place in New Jersey. She is very New Jersey. She's an extraordinarily broad character. I, I would almost like to uh, uh, call her Christy Christy, if that makes sense. <laughs> I, 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 and she's, she's a large woman, and she's really joysy. And, uh, you know, but, but she's a lot of fun. But at the same time, I, I found myself thinking of one and two because the characters keep running back to kind of a diner in those two yeah. movies. And I kept wondering, is this the same diner? Is this the same diner? <laughs> you know? Oh, God. Wouldn't it be cool if it was? Well, uh, because I mean, you know, I mean, really, if we're going to ground this in reality, I am the person who runs the diner at which like victim people keep showing up and then they get murdered by some psycho in the woods. I mean, that's actually kind of a story in and of itself, you know? Absolutely. And this character is as broad as like the hillbilly mother in part five, but it just works in this film. Like the characterizations are not much more subtle or nuanced in, in places than they were in part five, but it's just got a little bit more juice to it, a little bit more entertainment value. And that's one of the reasons why I find it more entertaining and back to good dialogue in the sense that it's um, it's entertaining, where Duke is here at the diner, and we meet Diana, this waitress who we will learn is Jason Voorhees' sister, and he is trying to leverage that for his his plan to destroy Jason and her boyfriend, who's about twenty five years older than her from the look of it, is the local He's an old sheriff. Man. Yeah, He's an old yeah. guy. He is. He's got the white, like, bushy eyebrows, and she's, like, you know, a very handsome mid-40s woman, so it's it's kind of weird. But uh, he tries to get Duke away from her, and Duke has the line, she's only your lady because she hasn't had a taste of the Duke yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 he, I, I think that that name is not... A, uh, a coincidence. I, I think they really meant for this guy to be, you know, a very Western yeah. character. And uh, but at the same time, you know, I, we have to go all the way back to four for a character who is as, uh, you know, armed and armored and ready to hunt Jason. Good point. Yeah. He gives, us, he gives a much better fight too than the guy in four does. I mean, that's one of the, yeah, to yeah. me, one of the letdowns of four is that, we finally have a character who's aware of Jason and seems to be prepared to do battle with him. Um, and he, his, his, uh, you know, he, he doesn't put up much of a fight. I'd like to see again, as, as we've talked about throughout this franchise, what it's been, what it needs, uh, I think in order to succeed is someone who can really handle Jason. Um, and Creighton Duke as, as cartoonish and, and, and kind of broadly drawn as he is, he is someone who knows what he's getting into and is ready for it. Yeah, he runs laps around that guy, the uh, yeah. Jason Hunter in part uh, four. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that dude is just kind of a dude, whereas Creighton Duke is, is a lot of fun. And I, I, the only quibble that I have with this guy is he's very much an example of a character who just kind of shows up with a lot of uh, you know exposition 
and you go, how do you know how the rules work? And right. it's like, oh, well, I just kind of know how the rules work because that's the function of my character. And you go, okay. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get into his exposition more later. So oh, yeah. one question that the exposition here raises is, why wasn't Jason going after his sister Diana before he got blown up if it was, like, important to him? I mean, I realize he had his body at that point, supposedly, but, um, you know, if he knows who his sister is, like, why is he just, like, oh, that's kind of the trump card in my back pocket in case I get blown up. I'll just, I'll, then I'll go after my sister. I resisted doing the math on this, but given that we now know exactly what year Jason was born and sort of everything else, does that all add up? Does it make sense? Is she an older sister or a younger? She must be an older sister, I assume. No way. No way. No, I mean, like, that's what I mean. So the math, that, that's, like I said, I, I stayed away from that. So I thought, this movie's going to work. I just need to accept that she's his sister. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's ridiculous. And I should point out, we haven't indicated on the podcast that he's hunting her because if he were to transfer himself into either her or her daughter or her daughter's daughter, uh, somehow he gets his own body back. So that's why Jason is stalking uh, these three women that we're going to end up meeting. So the boyfriend or ex-boyfriend of Diana's daughter, who looks about three and a half to four years younger than her mother, by the way, in casting terms. <laughs> <laughs> this guy looks like Judge Reinhold to me. Like he's got this geeky glasses, goofy guy look. And I love one of the things I love about this movie is when we meet him at the diner and then he's driving his car and he's sort of dancing behind the wheel to some, you know, cheesy music. We're immediately thinking, oh, OK, this guy is total fodder. You know, he is our next dorky guy who will provide some comic relief and then shuffle off into the great uh, dark night but instead he's the lead of this film ladies and gentlemen and i think they do a really nice job of camouflaging that for quite some time yeah i agree i i and if we're going to touch on that i would say that i in in the in these films we have one of two kinds of protagonists the first is our standard final girl in which uh, she sometimes has a male rom romantic interest who uh, uh provides some physical backup i uh, Either that, or we have the male protagonist, and in that case, you know the you know Tommy Jarvis and this guy, and in both cases, you know the the film goes completely out of its way to not make him as powerful as the male uh, backup physical tough guy uh, that we see show up in, when the protagonist is uh, you know female. Uh, they're always weakened. In some way, like Tommy Jarvis is nuts. Uh, you know, in four, he's a little boy. In five and six, he's nuts. And in this one, our male protagonist is like this kind of geeky, goofy guy who you don't think can ever take Jason Voorhees in the fight. Right. And by the way, he plays the lead in the Friday the 13th, uh, the TV show spinoff uh, that was airing for a year or two before this film came out. So I don't know if anyone you know, thought that that added some extra cool factor to this project or not. But uh, watching the film without knowing that, like, I enjoyed the sleight of hand as we learn um, more about this guy. And he does get kind of a hero beat in this first scene because he picks up these hitchhikers who are 
two girls and a guy. And oh, by the way, I should mention that Diana told him, like, meet me at 1130. We're going to talk about uh, your baby. Uh, so we learned that <laughs> we, we learned that he's estranged from the baby mama, who is Diana's daughter uh, named Jessica. And he's trying to patch up the fences, but she's moved away. And obviously, like, he's not man enough for her or something is the implication. But he's going to go out there and meet Mama, and he's going to talk about the baby and, you know, learn what he can learn about patching his, his family back together or whatever. So he picks up these hitchhikers, and there's a single girl among them, and he, he makes this joke because they're right near Crystal Lake, and they want to go camp there. He's like, you kids planning to smoke a little dope, have a little premarital sex, and get slaughtered? And they're like well, Jason's been dead for a week or so. We're planning to smoke a little dope, have a little premarital sex, and not get slaughtered. And I really enjoyed that little interchange. It's an extraordinarily meta movie. Yeah. And I actually thought, I mean, in that scene in particular, the the single girl kind of comes on to him and he rebuffs her. But she gives in that, that one scene, she gives a very good performance. Yeah, uh, I came away from that going, God, I, you know, it's just too bad what's about to happen to her. Oh, um, my note on that, again, not knowing that he was the protagonist, mm-hmm. was that, you know, he would, yeah, he'll get killed sooner if he gave in to this siren song. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I was rooting for him to fall for this incredibly alluring pitch that she throws at him. I would blow off my 1130 appointment with my ex-girlfriend's mom. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, hey, I, I said 11.30. Why are you here at 11.15? Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> I got a flat tire. What do you want? <laughs> yeah, so then we follow the three campers for a little while, and uh, our girl, who I agree, Vic, is quite charming all the way to the end. Like, she never really does anything to invite jason's ire other than hitting on our boy and so she uh decides to give up her tent to the couple so that they can knock boots and she wanders off into the woods to urinate Uh, i'm glad that in this movie we're not watching guys take a dump we have girls going off to take a piss which is a little bit you know more cinematic and um we see her really high-waisted thong back panties which are quite a bit like the first girls and i don't remember this guys like um maybe i i was just like hopelessly not getting any uh when the year that this movie came out but do you guys remember this style i don't i was i was definitely hopelessly not getting any so <laughs> well i mean uh, i i was wearing banana hammocks in that style all the time like oh dear god years. I mean, I'm 89 to now, so I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, they're comfortable. I don't know what to tell you. But uh, I, you know, the brilliance of this sequence, this sequence, is the girl. She goes out, and if you're watching uh, with subtitles, as we did, uh, we get in brackets urinates, <laughs> and then she returns, and then she gets killed. And then what immediately happens is uh, we we get a really thoroughly involved sex scene. Uh, I would say as the most thoroughly involved sex scene that we've had since five uh, and that much more naturalistic. I mean, it's like, I mean, you get like the moment of penetration there. I mean, there's, there's like a, 
I mean, there's a lot of passion in the scene. It's like, I mean, they actually got good actors to play out the sequence. And then what happens is she gets up, goes outside, in brackets, she urinates, and then she is killed as well. Well, no, now, now this is so. This is one of the interesting things to me about this this scene. And interesting is a strong word. Um, what's amusing to me? Is that she, <laughs> she gets up to go get a condom, right? And she right. comes back with the condom. Right? She, she she left a tent. Like I, again, I'm an avid camper. Okay, so when you get up in the middle of the night to go get a tent, go outside of the tent where it's cold and there are bears and God only knows what else. Right. With no clothes on to go and get a condom. She returns with the condom. She gives it to the boyfriend. Right. And the boyfriend spends five seconds not being able to open it and is like, I hate these things, baby. And she just grabs it and tosses it. And again, this is the the the, the strange physics of uh, Friday the 13th. She tosses it apparently inside the tent. It later appears outside the tent. Um <laughs> I think this that, uh, girl is like, yeah, whatever. Let's just get pregnant. Like, maybe she left that zipper open. Strange, it was a very strange scene, but I agree that it is. It, as as sex scenes go, it is one of the 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 better produced in this franchise. But I, I, I'm kind of carrying on that thought. Yes, you're absolutely right because she throws it out of the tent in a you know kind of bending of physics purely because the filmmakers want to have that beat in which our Jason Voorhees surrogate steps on a wrapped condom on the way to the tent to kill them. And the last time we've had that explicit of a shot was the, uh, the American Express card in the, in the puddle. Yeah. It's sex. You know, so I, I, it's obviously like a very distinct choice. What exactly that shot is saying I don't know, but I did laugh out loud when I saw it. Well, I mean, this is the clear wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're aware of the fact that Jason kills people fornicating. You know, this movie really uh, has fun with that, you know, like, uh, and this is just one of those things where like, you know, Jason steps on the condom wrapper because like he's zeroed in on the wearer of that condom. And and his paramour because you know that's what Jason does. So you're you're laughing, you're chuckling at this. It's not particularly scary. And there's also a great line here. I I need to point out. The guy says while he's banging his girl, he's like, "You think you're or about to?" Before he gets the condom, um, he says, "You think you're ready for Tony the Wonder Llama?" <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. Oh wait, I gotta ask this. What I wondered was if if uh, there are any Monty Python fans listening, um, if you watch the opening credits to uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they they the credits are very amusing. And in one version of the credits, uh, they replace everyone with llamas. Uh, yes. And one of the credits in there is Ralph the Wonder Llama. Oh, that's right. That's right. And, I, and so I assumed that's what it was a reference to, but I would have just said Ralph the Wonder Llama instead of Tony the Wonder Llama. But that's that would still... have been the most esoteric reference <laughs> in the history of cinema. <laughs> well, there are. We'll get to it, but there are references to Evil Dead and Creepshow in this film that are extremely literal. So anyway, 
Uh, Diana, the waitress, goes out to feed this dog named Tango because, of course, we need a dog with a goofy name because it's a Friday the 13th film. And then we meet the cop named Josh. And when you give me the name Josh, I always think of like a balding, pudgy cop. It's, it's, it's kind of a weird like pairing of name and character. But this guy I will be... I hope you don't get pulled over this week, man. Just saying. <laughs> Hey, Josh, what's up, man? (laughs) Get on your knees. So Josh gets ambushed by Jason, and uh, the guy close. I mean, Jason closes the door on the guy's girlfriend, and it kind of snaps her neck, which I thought was pretty cool. And then we get crazy again. Another total WTF moment. We cut from that to Jason in the form again of this uh, Richard Gant, the coroner. He's got the deputy Josh naked, tied down in a house, and he puts shaving cream on his neck and his lip, upper lip, and he shaves the guy. What the fuck? I can't actually explain that. I I agree with you. (laughs) What the fuck? It was... Like he just because the the transference of the uh, the worm like thing that seems to contain the essence of Jason like does he just not like mustaches in that exchange? What's particularly, What's particularly funny like, about that is that the coroner has a mustache. Yeah, I, there's no, I, there's, there's no. I I don't think there's a good explanation for it except that. They wanted the audience to say what the like they because they yeah. set it up with this moment when he he holds this you know this scalpel or straight razor or whatever against his throat and you think all right he's just going to cut his throat which is bizarre because he's drug him back to this house and strapped him to this table, um, but it's like oh no wait he's going to give him a shave, uh, I, that's the only as far as I can tell that's the only explanation I do not understand this. Scene. Well, Jason doesn't have a scruffy neck and a mustache in most of these films, I suppose, even though in part two he has a beard as we see him uh, at the end of the film. So it's it's definitely random. But I was, uh, I was waiting. Now, there is the scene when he sort of bursts in on the on the waitress, and I was waiting for her to turn around and say, what happened to your mustache? happened. <laughs> <laughs> i'm really sad that didn't happen as well so let's get to that he bursts in now possessed deputy josh now is carrying the jason spirit he bursts in on diana and she finds a a pistol in time to blow his brains out and she thinks that that solved the problem and he's lying in the middle of the living room and for some reason she steps right over him Personally, I would probably climb over the couch to avoid someone. I'd just seen cast Jason's reflection in a mirror before I shot him in the head. Um, But no, she steps right over him. And of course, he comes to life, grabs her, and he's transmitting this slimy worm thing mouth to mouth to her. It's Jason meets Shivers. They came from within. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what other films can we think of that? Cronenberg. Yeah. I mean, there's Chrome, I mean, there's other movies. I mean, it Night just seems of the like Creeps a, came to my mind. Yeah, mm. Night of the Creeps. Uh, it feels like I just saw something like that. Uh, 
I, I, well, I, even I, Prince I, of Darkness has the transmission mouth to mouth. Yeah, where, that's after. we 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 open, you know, the bad guy opens his mouth, something shoots out of his mouth into your mouth, and now you're evil too. So then, Deputy Jason throws a knife in Diana's back, apparently accidentally. Maybe he's aiming for Judge Reinhold because uh, he's stormed in to save her because he didn't fuck around with the uh, nubiles at Crystal Lake. And uh, we'll we'll call him Stephen is is his name. So from now on, that's the uh, the lead. And he impales the deputy with a poker, which for some reason causes causes him to fall out the window. So Diana though is dying because she's got this knife in her back, and she says, "Save Jessica." Um, so we switch point of views at this point to Jessica. She shows up, and her her mom's dead, and she's got the baby with her. And she came to possibly um, rekindle things with Stephen, but unfortunately, he's now in jail because the sheriff believes that, he, of course, Stephen killed Diana. Well, and remember too, I don't think she's trying to rekindle things with Stephen because she brings her new boyfriend. Oh, you're uh, right, Robert Cult, Robert Camp, Robert Campbell, played by Stephen Cult. That's true. Uh, and it's also, I, I just want to point out, I paused it right at this moment. Because we are literally, I, I, the the time clock was up there, 45 minutes into the movie, at which point we get the girl who is going to be the final girl. Um, yes. That, that gets points for being original, but I'm not sure if it's good screenwriting to introduce your uh, essentially central character uh, 45 minutes into the movie. Well, I'll lump that within with Steven seeming like a victim that like they're playing games with the audience here in having these two characters end up being the leads that, you know, I'll tip the cap to that because it is so unorthodox. It's, it does. I agree, John. It does. They do get points for being unorthodox. This is not part two. When we see the girl roll up in her, uh, uh, sputtering jalopy and, and go, Oh, that's clearly the, the final girl. Our boy Steven is in this cell and in the next cell, cause he got arrested for hassling the sheriff is Duke. And this is one of the best examples of camouflaging exposition with something more interesting and suspenseful that I've seen in quite a while, because basically Steven is trying to figure out like this mythology that Duke is clearly uh, a master of uh, regarding Jason and how it pertains to Jessica. And of course, Steven's daughter as well. And Duke sadistically <laughs> creates this game where he will parcel out certain clues, but only after Steven has stuck his hand through the bars and allowed Duke to, with great ceremony, snap one finger at a time. This is my favorite scene in the entire film. I agree. It's great. I mean, I found myself that I think the, what pulled me out of it in spite of how, how great it is. And again, I think it's part of it is setting up, uh, uh, Steven as a real hero that we're seeing him grow from our initial impressions of him into this guy who's willing to have his fingers broken in order to save, uh, you know, the girl that he loves and his baby. Um, what pulls me out of it is, as Mike said, where the fuck did he get all this information? 
Like, why? Like, this guy's saying all this stuff. Like, why does Steven believe it to the point that he's willing? Like, even though you stabbed a guy through the heart with a fire poker and threw him out a window and they left. Like, are you still? Oh, I think you just explained it. I think you just explained it. I mean, when when you see something so uncanny happen and someone appears to have an interpretation of that, uh, and you're desperate as well, like I, I, my problem with it is more that. Again, why the fuck does Duke know any of this? And it's also a very nebulous concept with how Jason would be seeking to be reborn here. Like the how and the why and, you know, what would motivate that. It's like one of those examples. Like, I really believe that the more you become explicit with mythology, the worse things end up becoming. Because, like, you're so literal, but it's never going to – you never have time and very rarely is it airtight enough that these questions don't arise when you're literal. This is why, for example, It Follows is so much more successful with its mythology. You know, uh, the, the wonderful thing about this sequence, though, is uh, by the time it wraps, like both characters get a hero beat because uh, Duke is, you know, he, he, he tells our guy, oh, yeah, the, this third piece of exposition is going to be really expensive. And uh, and our guy Stephen immediately sticks his hand through the bars, you know. I and in the first one he was surprised by the breaking finger. The second one he met it with a great deal of trepidation, which is understandable. And the third one he was just like, "Here's my finger, go break it." And in this case, Duco grabs his hand and he looks at him and goes, "This one's a freebie." So I mean, already Stephen is a braver than we thought, and Duke is b a little more compassion than we thought. I agree with all those things. And I, cause I agree. It's a great, it's a great moment when he, you know, as he continues to volunteer his hand, it really does set him up as a, a, a more interesting character than we've assumed him to. And that Creighton Duke allows, you know, says, I'll just give you this piece of information, makes him a more sympathetic character. But again, I, John, what you just, what, what you said is, if I'm this guy and I'm going to keep sticking my hand through the bars, I want to know where you got this information. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what, that's what pulls me out of it is you, you know, s- cite your references, man. Like, <laughs> well, to me, I think that this is sort of like, you got to draw the line somewhere on Expo yeah. and you get sure. a line at the very end where Duke says something to Jason, like, remember me? You know, and you realize right. obviously they've crossed paths before, and yeah, I, like they, it's it's I, that works for me in the sense that it's like there's history, there is backstory. I think I mean if you were to truly sell it on the level that uh, Vic is talking about, uh, you know, later on, and we'll get to that, of course. Later on, the uh, Necronomicon from the Avaled series makes an appearance, and if that book had appeared under Duke's arm. Then the audience can go, oh right, he re- he read an evil book, he knows all the shit, yeah. blah blah blah. Um, but sorry, I just I just have to say the Necronomicon comes from H.P. Lovecraft. Do respect to Evil Dead too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and yet though, continue. like continue. That was, don't, that was don't, don't 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 <laughs> pretend just, like you're you're cool. talking to amateurs. Come on, man. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Well, we're not civilians. We understand. The, yeah. the design of the of the Necronomicon in this is exactly like 
that Evil Dead commemorative special edition that they put out, like, I don't know, almost 15 years ago, which I okay. own. So, yes. like, I was literally looking at my DVD copy of the Evil Dead when the Necronomicon shows up in this film. We cut back to the diner, and we've got the crass diner owner woman, uh, Joey, and her much smaller uh, beau, who goes by the name of Pookie, which is fantastic. And mm-hmm. there's a cute scene where they're both trying to rack the slide on a gun because they know Jason and or Steven are coming to the diner because the baby has found its way, her way here. And Steven um, shows up there. And I wanted to say here, I guess at this point, um, we've talked about him previously, but he's such an unlikely protagonist. Like you didn't expect him to be the lead, not even close. And uh, I do appreciate how his heroism starts to come to the fore. And uh, we end up at the Voorhees house naturally after, well, maybe we should, anyone have anything to say about the fight at the diner where, yeah, um, I, you yeah. know, the, that fight was intensely nineties. It felt like yeah. uh, uh, the filmmakers had, had not only been looking at uh, Raimi films, but also uh, woo, like John Woo movies. Uh, there's a lot of slow motion. There's a lot of weird angles. There's a lot of PV going on. Is the most intensely like Croto '90s action horror fight that I, you know, I've seen in quite some time. Well, I do want to point out too the 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 scene that I probably liked. I want to say I liked the most, and especially in terms of Steven's character development, is there is this moment when the baby's in the back and he is able to to touch his child for the first time. And one yeah. of the cooks or busboys or something comes out again. And he says, he turns around and says in this very, I mean, again, a very touching moment of performance. This is the first time I've been able to touch my child. And the guy tosses him his keys and says, take my car. Ward is actually one of my favorite characters in this movie. And uh, I, it's sad to say that when he performed that action in that scene, I mistook him for a female. And it wasn't... <laughs> It wasn't until later since I, I go, oh, no, he's just an overweight so male. So, Mike, uh, Mike, did you pop a, a, a semi-chub for, for Ward there? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I just realized that this guy in, 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 another, in another decade would have been a juggalo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ward is, like, uh, by the way, for anyone who's not familiar with this extremely obscure character, um, he's the son of the diner owner and Pookie, I guess. And he's like this very innocent, but uh, well acted, like just really believable, chubby, blonde, like uh, busboy, grill jockey type type teenager. And we'll get yeah. back to him, uh, sadly. I, I and Vic, what do you think? Do you think it was named after Charles Dexter Ward? Oh, well, that's that's an interesting that's an interesting thought. I I've I in the wake of this, I'm thinking maybe if Jason hadn't hadn't arrived, you know, he could have been Caitlin later. Indeed, well, indeed. Well, By the way, though, never know the tragic end of of uh, Ward the Ward the the busboy grill jockey. Yeah. Well, Mike jokes about the naming. We do have characters named Landis, and there's a reference to Carpenter in this film. So, uh, was there a person named Myers too? Yes, they referenced the Myers house at some oh, point God. in the film. You know, I, like in 
in the early early nineties, I used to go, "Oh, this is funny," but these days, I'm like, I wince at that shit. I yeah, wince at it. Yeah. But before the big fight at the diner, um, Deputy Josh does. Uh, he drops his little slurpy worm thing into the sleazy, skeevy American uh, edition, whatever the hell the show's name. The host, um, the boyfriend, the new boyfriend of Jessica. So now he's got the Jason in him, and this is one of the more fun scenes. That leaves poor Deputy Josh to melt into the floor, uh, and there's some pretty cool gore effects there. Like he, yeah. he he drops to the floor, and his face touches it, and then he pulls back away from it, and most of his skin just like you know uh, stays sticking to the floor, so it stretches off and leaves the jaw on the floor. And we watched the unrated cut, uh, Mike and I, tonight, but I watched the theatrical a few nights ago, and this scene exists exactly the same in both of them, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, maybe think of, uh, you know, kind of a reverse version of uh, Frank returning in the first Hellraiser. Yes, that crossed my mind. Um no, I agree. It seems it it does seem a little bit like they're showing off the effects. Like this is where you see the seven million dollar budget, um, but it's it's very well done. I agree. And the jaw on the floor was was in particular uh, very effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so the possessed. Um, I forget the character's name. Rob, Robert uh, Campbell. Let's call it. Yes, thank you, thank you. Robert Campbell goes after. Um, Jessica and Steven at the Voorhees house, I believe. And we're not a hundred percent sure. Hang on. I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to back up a little bit because um, where he actually goes after them is at the police station. But in getting there, we have the scene with Steven and his, his friend, the deputy um, uh, Randy, that he's, he's uh, betrayed in the police station and everything else. Randy is played by Kit Marcus, who is the brother of the director, uh, Adam Marcus. Really? Yeah. And I found him throughout this film. I found him to be one of the most convincing actors in it. And their relationship, one of the most convincing relationships. I absolutely 100% agree. I I, I think that the relationship that those two characters have is one of the freshest aspects of this film. Because ordinarily, if you have a police character... You know, they're kind of this redneck or da-da-da-da-da. Or, like, you know, the best you get is, like, they're an overbearing father like uh, the cop in Six. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas in this, it's clearly, like, you know, we have two characters who obviously grew up together. They're childhood friends. And we've seen that dynamic in other movies, including other Friday the 13th movies, uh, like Shelley and the hand-walking guy in Three, uh, the two girls in Seven, you know, in which, like, one of them matures a little more quickly than the other. And we can almost say the same about this one. But these guys still really seem like friends. They're still at the same place. And, like, one guy just happened to become a cop because that's what you do in a small town. You know? Yeah. It's just kind of a gig. That and- definitely struck me as well. This is my favorite male friendship in this series. Right. Uh, I, I think that these two guys really do have sort of a chemistry together. And the scene that really exemplifies that is when they have this sort of they live like fight uh, where they're beating on each other 
but the resolution of the fight is that they're both on the same page again. And they're yeah. both kind of inept and they're not good fighters, but they beat the crap out of each other, but still, you know, love each other. Like, it's a really cool scene. Yeah. Like, the, the one guy is like, don't make me do this. And the other guy is like, don't make me do this either. I don't want to do this. It's like, and in both the scenes in which they have a confrontation, both in the cell and then later in the police station, like, both of them are extremely reluctant with their violence. And uh, especially at the, at, you know, at the cop car, you know, Steven is like, all right, well, uh, I'm done. Put the cuffs on me. Well, cool. yeah, that's because he yeah. learns that Jessica is back at the police station. So now he's going to give up and he's like, take me in because, you know, that's where yeah. he wants to be. Well, I mean, there's a really funny beat where like the cop, you know, I mean, the cop kid pulls out a gun and is like, right, we have to stop fighting now. Why? Well, I've got a gun. And the other guy goes, well, I've got a gun too. You know, it's like yeah. you can see. 10-year-old versions of these characters in that moment. Mm -hmm. Love it. And uh, and to my mind, that's good writing. That's good acting. Yeah, I would argue, and I agree with what Vic said, that I think that the, like, for somebody's brother or son or whatever, that the cop kid, Randy, is is excellent. And, like, he has even a, a screen presence. And I will just posit that I think that this film has the best acting of any Friday the 13th film that we've seen so far. Strong statement, but not uh, indefensible. John, that's what that's what you get for seven million dollars. Like I hate to say it, and I'm, I, yeah. I, I, wish that, I wish that was like I'm not even being just sort of cynical, but that's what you get when you get again Richard Gant as the yeah. the, uh, uh, the the Phil the coroner, and you get uh, even Stephen Williams as Creighton Duke. Uh, I did a, a little poking around. I mean, he was the police captain on Twenty One Jump Street. Um, mm -hmm. And had a recurring role in lots of stuff. I mean, that's it's the difference between getting somebody who knows enough and is is working regularly versus the guy. I mean, who, where did they find Shelley? Wasn't he handing out flyers? Yes, uh, uh, at right. the promenade yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, the, 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 they're they're not leaning on uh, you know community theater. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's I mean, in previous films, people may have gone on like Kelly Hu or someone like that or Kevin Bacon, you know, and had good careers. But going into this, they were you know soap opera actors at best. In this film, they really paid for casts that had some experience and some age. And it changes the whole dynamic of the film. Agreed. And when we get to the police station, by the way, yes. uh, uh, Stephen has one of the coolest moments that I feel like the the battered boyfriends of uh, Friday the 13th movies gets. And it's yeah. not much, but it's that moment when he's handcuffed and he jumps and pulls his, his cuffs out in front of him. Uh, yeah. Behind the back and he leaps Dude. up and pulls his, his cuffs out in front of him. And I was like... You, again, it's part of this transition from the guy that we think he is at the beginning to the, the guy that he becomes at the end. Yeah, dude, I, I, I just to jump in, like in any other movie, that character to pull off that beat would have to have that established. Like he's a ninja, he's got martial arts, uh, he's really into circus shit like Shelly, mm. you know, a la la la. But he just kind of busts that shit out, like out of nowhere. And he's going to go, oh, well, I, I guess when you're a protagonist, you get to pull these moves off now. It's so much, so. It's so much more impressive than whatever they did with Tommy Jarvis's, uh, uh, you know, American Ninja, Michael Dudikoff Kung Fu <laughs> in part five. Right. Uh, yeah, there's some bad fight choreography in this film, including in this scene. 
but that he sold that like that totally worked for me and i totally agree i really liked it so obviously we're talking about the scene now where like the terminator uh this version of jason who is in the body of um of the you know news magazine guy is invading the police station and we get a line that's very terminator where like one of the cops is like you all right, mister? And then, what the? And he just, like, sends him flying, and he's, like, marching into the station. And we have this double exposure shot with the sheriff's face in extreme foreground while he's on the phone. And the Jason Knight is attacking the girl, uh, Jessica, and a female cop in the background of the shot. It's like a double exposure thing. Um, not that That's many images in this. Ramy, very Ramy yes. shot, yeah. This is where the bad fight choreography comes in because Jessica um, manages to use this weak ass little elbow to the chest to knock this dude back a step, and she she runs off. She scurries off. But this is a you know it's a movie punctuated by horror action sequences, and much more than you know stabbings or horror sequences like you know the, the earlier films. These are meant to be action beats. You know, yeah. where it's like police station, we're uh, bum rushing a diner, where like a waitress has this shotgun that she's shooting in slow motion. You know, I, it's like they, they, they took their Raimi and John Woo pills, and this is the result. And, and they're applying it to, uh, again, you know, an early 90s common conceit. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's so fucking 92 this movie well, it's crazy it's, it's it's also more like jason lives than the other films in the sense that again this one largely functions as a different genre in this case it's sort of a dark sci-fi action movie for large stretches versus being a slasher film yeah and if you replace jason with an alien you would have the exact same movie like yeah. Vic said and, you know and again this one has horror elements but it's not Jason's movie. We're focusing on the other characters again, you know, like he is sort of the lurking shark, the antagonist, whatever, who will crop up every now and then, but we're really focused on Steven. And is he going to save his, his girl and the baby? And we've got Duke. And like, this is about the people, not Jason. We talked about as the franchise moved forward, the evolution of Jason as the protagonist. That at some point we started setting up characters that we hated because we wanted to see Jason kill them because really we were rooting for Jason. And you're right that this is a movement toward no, like Jason is actually the bad guy in this movie. And we're actually rooting for Steven and his evolution uh, in becoming a, a, a real hero and, and, you know, protecting his child. And those beats like him with, you know, being able to touch his child for the first time and, and him getting his fingers broken and jumping over the handcuffs and stuff, that those things put us back on the side of the, the actual characters as opposed to uh, being on Jason's side in a way that we haven't seen in a long time in the franchise. If we introduce an, an obnoxious character, which is something that kind of became a trope with 6, 7, eight, or, or no, with, with 7, 8 in this, this one, uh, is in 7 and 8, we couldn't wait until Jason would show up and machete that guy uh and this one we couldn't wait until jason would uh possess that guy so our protagonist would beat him up and uh it's interesting that the the you know the tv host dude suffers the most physical trauma i mean when he storms that diner 
he gets the shit beat the fuck out of him, you know? I mean, they fill him with bullets from every available direction, and uh, he keeps coming. And I mean, there's kind of a cool, yeah, shoot that guy, shoot the guy, I fucking hate that guy, shoot that guy. But the, the, the impetus is coming not from us hoping that Jason kills him, but from the protagonist beating that guy down. It's almost a Joseph Campbell hero's journey kind of structure for Steven. And I think that that first scene when he uh, passes on the cheap sex, you know, and I think that that grounds him very much as, as a hero in a kind of a subtle way. Because it's it's not like clearly again back to Amy Steele in part two. It's not oh, okay. Well, this is he's a good guy, and the movie is telling us we need to root for this guy. It's almost incidental. So I think there's a lot more kind of skill in this film than meets the eye because it is fucking broad, and there's a lot of cheesy and dated stuff. But I, I think that on some fundamental levels, it's kind of sophisticated. Oh, one other thing about the possessed people. They are not doing a Jason impression at all. No. I, I, I noticed that uh, uh, the sure sign that you are possessed by Jason Voorhees is you have uh, some black shit under your eyes. Right. I, uh, like you're going to go to a, a Halloween party and you decide to be a zombie at the last minute. It's I one black. Of the things, it's one of the things that hurts the film because – I'm not sure what you would use for this, but it seems like it would be really easy to give the characters some trait that every actor could carry with them. Uh, and again, I don't know what that is, but it's aside from walking like you've got a stick up your ass. No, I, 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 I Vicky, you, you mentioned in a, one of the earlier episodes that it is interesting that Jason feels the need to cover his face. I, I, and even though he's, you know, uh, I, I, he knows that he's uh, mutated, but who gives a shit? He's just some dude running around the woods. Why does he have to cover his face? You know, I mean, they're, they're, I wouldn't say that's vanity, you know, but there is like kind of a vulnerability. There's a humanity to that. Like, I, you know, I'm not saying that there's a version of this movie in which like people keep pulling like paper bags with smiley faces over their heads. But I have to wonder if, if it's like, Given that this is by far like the shittiest mask of the entire series, what if they kept putting something over their faces and it changed from one character to the next? Mike, I don't know. Mike, that's it. That's exactly what they missed. That's exactly what it should have been because you're right. That, that, is, that is an impulse that would have tied all of these people invaded by the, the Jason spirit back to the Jason Voorhees that we've known because that is the one through line is that he doesn't want his face to be seen, and whenever we've seen it, it's supposed to be a shocking revelation. Even in 5, when a guy is pretending to be Jason Voorhees, he still covers his face with a mask. Yeah. yeah and, and not just a hockey mask, but also like a full-on makeup mask to pretend like he's Jason Voorhees. And so it's like, I mean, you know, I, you know it feels like, yeah, I mean, again, we're not, we're not suggesting that characters should, like, put a pot over their head or some stupid shit like that, but it's like, you know, if... This is, in fact, the spirit of Jason Voorhees. Then we should have a character like look at themselves in the mirror and go, "Ah, people can see my face," yeah. and react to that and do something about it. Yeah, that's the I biggest that misstep. Works. That's the biggest misstep of this film, in my or eyes. If, yeah, I, or if they don't cover their faces, you know, I mean, is Jason at long last happy 
in spirit form that he has a face that can be looked upon. And, and in which case we should get that beat in which he touches his face. And he's like, I'm such a handsome man. I still have to hack up little girls, but I'm a handsome man now. That reminds me of the, the Prince of Darkness moment. We had the character who is entranced by his reflection in the mirror and stares at it and touches his face for, for so long that, it, that the, the Donald Pleasance character is able to sneak past him. But again, I think the simpler idea is because the mask is so iconic and so uh, important to the franchise, that impulse to cover your face, that's it. That would have that would have fixed a lot of it. That would have made this film that that would have bumped this film up from a, a five to a six. Yeah, I agree that the through line that that would have provided is sorely missed because he just his persona is absent from these bodies that he takes in, in other than maybe the black guy, the first guy, Richard Gant, I, I felt like, okay, that, you know, this is, he's pretty much playing this the way Jason would. Um, but yeah. everyone subsequent to that, like it might as well be the hidden two, you know, yeah, and you the, really the lose touch with, with Jason. The kill that he does with the scalpel, the first one they, that he does in the first place, so I, like that feels the most like Jason. Like, I'm going to kill somebody with whatever is on hand in the most expedient manner possible. I'm, I'll generate some fear because that's my ammo, but at the end of the day, this kid's going to die. All right, so I think we went out of order a little bit there because like they break this <laughs> diner scene into two uh, pieces, so... Actually, the fight at the diner comes after a lot of what we've been talking about. And so poor Ward is given a gun and he goes out uh, to, I don't know, get help or go to the police station or whatever. And he's flashing the gun around like a little kid, like having fun with it. And then suddenly, you know, the Jasonite is striding up to him and he kind of haphazardly points the gun at him and is like, hey, you know, stop or whatever. And the dude grabs his arm and breaks it in an extreme compound fracture. It's really brutal. And it was, it doesn't seem commensurate again with the idea of punishing people. Like they get the appropriate death for their uh, level of odiousness. It's like hard to watch this sweet kid go out the way he does. It's a reminder that it's a horror movie. Yeah, Yeah. I like it. Well, and I also think, I mean, Stephen Culp's, impersonation of jason is probably the strongest in the film and it, it continues throughout this this scene um yeah he's striding very purposefully and um he's very you know implacable in a classic jason kind of way and at one point he punches or elbows i think he elbows uh joe the loudmouthed uh new Jersey, uh grill jockey diner owner and he knocks her teeth in i guess and she has this weirdly comical makeup that it's disturbing but it's also funny what was your guys take on that vic not the best executed i agree i had the same impression where he kind of hit her and i sort of went wait what happened um because yeah her face gets gets very messed up um, yeah mike did you have any strong feelings about that i don't have any strong feelings i, okay. I, I have more strong feelings about ward I mean, uh, uh, you know, to, you know, th- that's one of the more spectacular deaths uh, in this uh, this up installment, and, uh, and especially because I mean, he's such an innocent dude. It's like, yeah, you know, he's just kind of 
goofing around with the gun. And, like, he's innocent just a shade above the goofy chocolate bar eating guy in five, you know? Um, right. And but, 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 but because he gets the earlier scene in which he flips his keys to Steven, like, he's not nearly as annoying as, like, a Shelly or somebody. It's like, you actually really feel that death. Uh, and that's one death that I like, like actually like landed with some impact with me in those films. Well, and you yeah. even have actually in that scene, you have the, the other waitress who, um, if I recall correctly, is the woman who was, who takes care of the baby when they're at the police station and is the yes. one very futilely trying to scrub out the blood stain in the carpet. That's one of the, hmm? the humorous scenes I, to me was when, when, uh, uh, the daughter finally comes home. Oh, but Vic, just to, just to jump in, this is the first moment in this entire franchise in which we've seen someone try to clean up behind Jason Voorhees. That's a that's an interesting point, and she demonstrates in the fact that she's scrubbing a, a blood stain the size of, you know, a a, a, a Hampshire, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That, you know, she's like, I wanted to have this out before you got here, and it's like, oh, sweetheart, you were never going to get that. <laughs> well, this, was, this was wasted effort. Yeah, it made me immediately think of uh, the girl who uh, that a really pretty girl who gets murdered in uh, sex, where she just kind of gets thrown around the room a lot, and the characters come in, and the entire place is just drenched in gore. And uh, Eric's like, "Damn, this is going to take a lot to get out." Yeah. So Jessica finds this note that uh, Creighton Duke has left in the diner. Uh, indicating that he's taken the baby and he's waiting for her at the Voorhees house and she needs to come alone. So she, uh, she does that. She takes off in, in the car and leaves poor Steven behind because, you know, she's, she's going to obey the terms of the deal. And here Duke softens and he really makes the turn from semi heel to, uh, you know, face, if you want to use WWF wrestling terms. And he basically says, it's not about the money anymore. And he gives her some more expo as well as a magic knife, which uh, only she can use to kill her brother or uh, um, uncle, Uncle Jason at this point. And this is pure fantasy. I mean, we might as well be watching like a Beastmaster movie at this point. Yeah. Where did the knife come from? Like right. I, I, Jason died in forty six. That knife looks like it's Etruscan. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like this is that sort of implied backstory with the Necronomicon that maybe Pamela and or Elias were into this shit, and their their son drowned, and they you know commune with dark spirits to bring him back or whatever. It's it's it's. There's definitely very tenuous linkage between this and anything that we would recognize as reality. But uh, apparently there's a trap door in the Voorhees house because poor uh, Duke falls through it. And not only that, but there's a Ponzi stick trap in the basement, which does kind of evoke some interesting thoughts about the Voorhees family. And I guess their survivalist (laughs) leanings. I didn't. I didn't think about that, but you're absolutely right. Like I just sort of accept that. Of course, the Voorhees house has spikes coming out of the floor. Like doesn't doesn't everybody's? Um, <laughs> was, was anybody else like I was confused? There's much talk about the Voorhees house in the film, and I was a little surprised. I I hadn't thought about where like because Jason has this shack out in the woods, like. 
I hadn't put much thought into the house that she had in town. You know, mm. my, my immediate thought was, damn, uh, a cafeteria waitress in a summer camp uh, makes a lot of money mm. to, to afford this gigantic mansion. Listen. But then, I, but then I thought, wait a minute. Perhaps Elijah uh, was making a lot of money or they came from old money. Uh, perhaps there's a, you know, a, a more noble background, if that makes sense. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons that Pamela loses her mind is due to the fact that, you know, they're sent on such hard times, you know. Well, there's something to be said, too. This is the, I can't believe we're going into this level of depth on this. But no, I no, 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 Vic. That is the exact purpose of this podcast. You're right. That's what we do. Um, we have talked about the the evil emanating from Crystal Lake uh, that. You know, again, my my joke in part seven was like, how many bodies are down there? Like, you know, how many people could she have reanimated before she finally arrived at Jason or her father? The property values in this area are probably not very high. (laughs) Probably die all the time. Like, one has to wonder if the Voorhees family wasn't so murderous just to drive down the property values to the extent that you know a single mother uh, working in a cafeteria in a (laughs) suburb couldn't afford. This gigantic mansion, although, I, you know... I, you know it's I, all you know, about fighting like, gentrification. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, but it is, of course, you know, they're going to have this gigantic mansion that's uh, covered with ivy. It's out in the middle of the wilderness. And it's very reminiscent of uh, Candyman 2 and uh, the later episodes, you know, the remake of uh, Sex Chainsaw Massacre. You know, that, another uh, Candyman I, 2 reference. I was say, are, are we the only podcast to reference Candyman 2 in multiple episodes? <laughs> Let me tell you this, guys. Let me tell you this. I mean, the, the, yeah, as much as I love Wes Craven, and I'm sure he's a wonderful husband and father and human being, and, and he's an excellent filmmaker in many ways. But for me, the true excellence of the 90s is at the beginning and the, at the end. The beginning is Candyman. The end is Blair Witch. And everything in the middle for me is various shades of exactly this kind of self-referential jokey bullshit that I fucking hate, to be honest. It's like everybody in the entire world considers Scream to be this masterpiece, and I fucking hate that movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, it drove me nuts at the time. Like, I was so anti-Scream for what it did to slashers and horror in general. I mean, basically, it was it was saying, hey, we're going to turn the things that you love into a fucking joke, and no one will take it seriously ever again. Yeah, it's, it's weird that, I mean, this movie does this four years before that, and there are shades of, you know, this kind of thing going on in other movies before that, too. It's just like, you know, so it's like, Oh well, you know it. You know it rejuvenated the genre. It's like no, it fucking ruined horror for years, for yeah. years. And I, I, you know, it's hard for me to look at this movie and go, oh yeah, it was doing that bullshit years even before. Yeah, but fucking ruined. Well, so, but I, I think in defense of Scream, what I would say is that Scream ruined horror. Yeah, I actually wouldn't argue with that. Scream probably did ruin horror for years. Because it, it, because it did it so well. And when you look at this movie, what you see is that people were were flirting with this idea. And again, because the genre is uh, – because it, it behaves according to such clear-cut rules and, and motifs mm-hmm. um, that by the time you got to Jason 9, 
what else were you going to do except acknowledge some of the, the, the tropes that had come before it, but it doesn't do it. It doesn't do it very successfully. And I think as we get to the climax of this film, what you're going to see is the, the many ways, because to me, this is the weakest part of the film. These are the many ways in which it, it, it drops the ball. Okay. Um, Vic, I, I will say this. I, I think that this film is the precursor to scream. Mm-hmm. And I think that the scream is the end of these films yes. and where horror as a genre truly jumps a track to something new is with seven. All right. Well, I'll say that first, yes, I agree that the ending of this film is execrable. It's, it's really quite bad. And on the scream thing in defense of scream, the one good thing it did is that it called out the genre on a lot of hokey shit that it needed to be called out on. And you could maybe say that we wouldn't have had things like Blair Witch if we could keep trotting out all of these fucking hackneyed, uh, you know, lame tropes that, that we got bogged down in. So it basically said, you know what, horror, you got to step up your game. So yeah, I, I appreciate yeah, that. I, I, yeah, yes. there, there, there's a sensibility that, you know, uh, you have to, I mean, kind of like, wages of fear and you have to you know drop some nitroglycerin into the flaming oil well in order to get to explode and then it will be settled and i you know i think that i mean yeah this movie was both very much a sign of its times and also a sign of the times to come in just a couple of years but at the same time it's like Man, there is, there was a really interesting version of a meta horror movie made, and that was Friday the Thirteenth, uh, or I'm sorry, Nightmare on Elm Street: The New Nightmare Part Seven, yes. which okay. I, yeah, which guys, I, I'll fucking straight up love that movie. I think that that, to my mind, is like the smart way that you do a scream, I or the, or the version of this, or or a smart way that you do Friday the Thirteenth Part Nine. I agree 100%, especially about New Nightmare. I think that's, I heard it described once as adaptation, you know, years before anybody thought of doing adaptation. Yeah, yeah. This one, to my mind, is like, you know, the thing that I, one of the things I hated most about three was that self reflectiveness. We have this character, Shelly, and he's doing makeup effects and he's pretending to be a slasher. And people go, ah, you goofy guy. And then we have a character who's reading uh, a, a copy of Fango, uh, an article about Tom Savini, and it's like, you know, you know, stop fucking jerking off the audience and scare them. You know, make, make a horror movie. But Scream did give us, all of us, the world, Skeet Ulrich. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, all right. And that is something. Okay, well, uh, we still have Skeet uh, somewhere. I don't know where he's doing commercials in Japan or what he's he up to. But... Skeet. He shoots Skeet. <laughs> he shoots <Yeah>. Skeet. <laughs> so now, picking up the thread, there's uh, the Ponzi stick trap, and uh, poor Duke is uh, hanging, clinging. He's clinging to the the masonry and she's got him it looks like jessica might be able to pull him up and then the sheriff shows up she she forgets duke drops him and he lands on a stake which i find quite funny yeah and so now we establish some new mythology and that there's 
Randy and the sheriff are both here, and one of them is Jason, and Duke is like, kill them both to her. He's just yelling, like, kill them both. But they're both talking, which is where the mythology changes. You know, so she's like, is that you? And the sheriff's like, of course, give me the knife. And the other guy, Randy, is like, freeze, get the hell away from her, Ed. So it seems like it's definitely Ed, the sheriff. But it's actually Randy. So possessed Randy is talking as Jason. Discuss. Kip Marcus sells it? <laughs> uh, Why didn't I, Jason I just shoot them? Uh, I mean, look, it's, look, they, they, again, this is, this is why the climax doesn't work. They, they bent over backwards to pull off this reversal where you think that it's, uh, you know, that it's one and not the other. And it's actually Randy and not the sheriff. It's, I, it's silly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're trying for yeah. some cool sleight of hand, sleight yeah. of hand here. And it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. No. Again, I, if we're going to talk about Scream, I, 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 that franchise is full of this kind of half-assed horseshit. You know, yeah. it was like, and I, I, this is kind of a beat that you originally get in um, a double movie or possession movie where it's just like, I'm the real Ethan Hawk. No, he's the real Ethan Hawk. I'm, ignore him. He's the clone, you know, and uh, <laughs> they're, they're trying to play that beat. But when you actually go, wait a minute, one of these guys is invested with the evil spirit of a dude who's never talked to his entire life. That actually doesn't make any sense. Well, that's, this, is, this, is, this is what you get from Shocker and the first power and the, yeah. and the other iterations of this idea. And it's, it, I suppose they, they at least held off on trying to play this card until the end. But it doesn't work when you play it in the end. That's what I, that's what I mean when I say if you replace the name Voorhees in Camp Crystal Lake with another serial killer in another place, this could be a completely independent film. And yeah, this yeah. was the script, the spec that uh, got turned into this movie was called The Second Power, or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, I, I, I will say that, uh, you know, I mean, just to lay it all out there, I had actually never seen this film uh, until we did this podcast. Uh, because by the time we got to eight, uh, like I was rolling my eyes at this franchise. And when friends of mine were telling me that they were going to go see uh, the new Jason Voorhees movie, I was like, are you fucking serious? You know, I was, com- you know, I was completely around the bend on this franchise. And, um, I, you know, you know, the thing is, you know, I kind of missed out on, it feels like a key beat in the 90s scene because I, John, you had actually mentioned that, uh, this is the only Friday the 13th movie to, have. Uh, been made in the 90s and i think that that is telling i mean it was clearly a franchise where they're like you know it still has some name value enough that we should make another one of these but i mean we can't just have some dude run around and chop up people and that is a clear expression of the last four like we're talking about when we're doing the uh the last installment of the machete awards like the last the core four are a dude, are four movies about a dude running around, you know, someone running around and chopping up teenagers. The next four are four movies in which every take has to be something different. And in this one, it's like, okay, we have to really justify why this movie exists. And even so, it's only going to be for a very limited audience. They're going to be very horror savvy. You know, the only kids who are going to be in this audience are going to be the ones who enjoy Fango and Evil Dead and Romero and da 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 da. So That's a good segue. Easter eggs. Let's give them some shout outs. That's a good you segue. Because normal people aren't sitting in this fucking movie. It's just fans at this point. Right. 
So we have this uh, worm baby thing. And, you know, Vic mentioned at the top that he didn't think this movie was batshit nuts enough. I don't think that's where this film fails. Like, I think this film is as freaking insane as you're going to you're going to get and and it, maybe we we did watch the uh unrated cut i have to mention that um, uh tonight because the worm baby goes down into the basement after uh poor randy gets his throat slit open uh his best friend has to steven has to almost decapitate his best friend from childhood uh we don't linger on that beat but the worm baby goes down into the basement where mom Diana her corpse we've established has been in this place kind of like Henrietta in Evil Dead 2 for much of the film and it wriggles up her vagina we get that in the um in the unrated cut which is clearly by the way back to uh the Cronenberg film uh it's absolutely taken from that uh from shivers they came from within and so we also see while it's doing that, there's this crate and it's from an Arctic expedition and it's clearly the crate from Creepshow. Uh, so we just throw that in for no fucking reason whatsoever yeah. other than, again, to wank off the Fango crowd. <laughs> and, and I, for one, appreciated being wanked off. <laughs> I appreciated it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, thank, you, thank you for the hand job. Yeah. That was kind of you. Um. There's your two dollars. Wow, I mean, but yeah, a, a, a weird necrophilia beat in the in, in this late in the franchise. Um, <laughs> I didn't. Well, I, 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 there's always been like a dead mom thing going on in the in, in in these movies. So I mean, it's not super super surprising. I you know, to my mind, it, I, I actually for me it came off as like kind of a half ass version of uh, the ending beat in uh, Dead Alive. Is there, guys, in the unrated cut? Because I, I watched the the theatrical cut, and all I get, all we get, is sort of weird noises from downstairs, and Stephen saying, "Wait, does she have to be alive? Um, is yeah. there is there any uh, allusion to what happens after that before Jason, be, you know, returns to his uh, uh, normal decrepit form and leaps through the floorboards? Nope. Nope. All right. Well, good yeah. then. That's probably better because yeah, basically uh, the the tequila worm from Poltergeist Two <laughs> ju- jumps downstairs, crawls up a dead woman's vagina, turns into Jason Voorhees, not reborn, uh, which actually would have made more sense for him to be like a boy again, like an eight, but in this one he's he's got a mask. He's born with this mask on. Well, he looks exactly the same as he did at the beginning of the film. And and he leaps up through the floorboards, and uh, it's just like, oh, shit, Jason's back. Oh, no. So they're looking for this dagger that will destroy him, and it's like, you know, it's flying around, and it's it's all kind of well staged how she loses the dagger, and Steven tackles Jason through the window, and meanwhile, like, we can assume that she's collecting the dagger. And Jason goes non-lethal in his attacks again with the uh, boyfriend. I kept Ew. waiting for Steven to lose consciousness, but oh. it didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there, there are two awful aspects to this entire uh, uh, climax. And the first is the dagger element. I, I mean, Omen 3, we saw something like that. I think First Power had something like that. The idea that we have a magic dagger and that's the only way to, you know, the certain person has a certain, stab them with a certain dagger. 
ah, fuck off. You know, it's straight off the shelf. Yeah, yeah, and meanwhile, and, and, Jason is beating him with a pole and throwing him around, and he hits him once with the shovel and then throws the shovel aside so that he can continue to throw Steven around. It's so dumb. And it, right. of course, gives her time to do the dagger stab, you know, to get Jason in the impale him with the dagger. Easy peasy. I thought, I wrote my notes on this, all caps, two exclamation points. Horrible. This drove yeah. me nuts. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you, you know when, I, especially when Jason Voorhees, the character that we've established, is going to murder you with whatever is on hand. Like, he's got a shovel in his hand, he's looking at you, you're on the ground, and he throws the shovel aside. And the script is just making a cheat to uh, keep him getting through it. And any action for a beat in which a character is just kind of getting thrown around until another character can find a way to defeat the villain, you know, you're just kind of rolling your eyes at I- Although... I will say that I laughed out loud when uh, he shoves over the jungle gym. There's a yeah. jungle gym up there, yeah. and he shoves it over. I thought that was nice. Great. I I assumed there was a shed somewhere with a bushwhacker and uh, a bushmaster, and uh, he was he was just holding off so he could get a hold of that. Because uh, Jason will toy with you. Jason does enjoy yeah. here. We've established that. But uh, when you're kind of like you know, an episode of a team with a, you know, where, where people are getting just kind of thrown around, you know, just to, uh, you know, draw at someone's death. It's like, that is, um, that's artificial. You are cheating. And we missed our chance. The one chance in the history of horror for a character to be murdered with a jungle gym. <laughs> yeah, I know. We were so close. He gets caught in that thing. I'm just like, we, oh, geez, and just pick it up and impale him. And yeah, something. No, no. But that's why I like this movie in a nutshell, is that even though there's these, these things that drive me nuts and that are so aggravating and stupid, we do have the jungle jib. You know, like this movie is batshit nuts at every turn. We literally have a guy being thrown into a, you know, monkey bars and Jason overturning the monkey bars with him inside it. Like, wait, yes. what the fuck? <laughs> I, I, I think that the horror world is, is screaming literally for a, a, a killer jungle gym movie. Yeah. This is what we need. We need Christine on monkey bars. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. So we have, for the second time in this film, a character yells, go to hell, and to Jason. And this one takes because she stabs him with the dagger, and we have these big rubber, really rubbery hands pop out, and they're dragging Jason under the ground, and they grab Steven too, but she can save Steven. She pulls him out because the rubber hands prefer Jason, and his head disappears under a spotlight, and we have some really silly non-digital dancing lights floating away like Tron or something. Yeah, and it's very much uh, is... uh, red lights uh, are, are demonic, and blue lights are angelic in this movie. Yes. As in and so then finally we, get the, finally, we get the tag ending that literally is the Carrie ending this time, their version of it where there's Jason's mask and Tango the Wonder Dog comes to sniff the mask that's left behind after he's been Not sucked be into hell. Not to be confused with Tony the Wonder Llama. <laughs> Not to be confused with Tony the Wonder Llama. No. <laughs> so the mask is sitting there in the dirt and the bucolic music is playing and all is 
you know, behind us, the, the film is resolved and Freddy's glove just pops out of the ground and, and yeah. drags the mask down to hell and he laughs. Well, pulls the, the, the mask under the ground, literally establishing the seed in the earth for Freddy versus Jason. Yeah. Yeah, which took another 10 years to make. God, wouldn't it be awesome if uh, Jason had leapt into the dog? We needed an well, implacable dog with a, with, with a <laughs> hockey mask on its face. We missed so, a huge opportunity, a new line. Quit fucking your models and get on the dog. Oh, wait, he's not there anymore, but you know what I mean. Yes, Benji meets Jason. That's we need a, a movie in which a dog with a hockey mask is going around biting people and transferring its evil spirit. How could you bite people through the hockey mask? Come on, dude. Dude, because it's balanced on, <laughs> on the foreground of its snout. You see what I mean? It's like, it, it, dude, it's like Cujo. Cujo transfers the rabies into different people, and they become rabid. This movie did open against Man's Best Friend. At least in the, within, the, within the same year, I, I noticed. Uh, well, man, two, two recurring no. tropes to mention. Uh, mm-hmm. We do get a bear in the film in some tangential way there is a uh smoky the bear sign quite visible at roadside for no other reason than to keep the bear thing going Mm -hmm. and then we also have one recycled name like i have to give this film props like we don't have the same litany of character names but somewhere in the credits i spotted a vicky that's the only recycled name wait are you sure there wasn't another creighton in one of the other (laughs) movies Duke the Wonder Dog. Duke the Wonder Dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Final thoughts. Let's go around the horn really quickly. Uh, Vic, what's your uh, anything that you didn't get to say or you want to add as an aside? I appreciate that they went so far off the the reservation, so to speak, uh, in trying to find a new way to tackle this. Uh, I wish they had come up with it with something that did not feel so familiar to me. And uh, I do think you can feel, again, the strength of the performances and, and, and the, the difference between $3 million and $7 million in terms of the, the quality of actor that you can get for those various parts. Uh, Stephen Culp would go on to play Robert Kennedy in 13 Days and was, did not get an Oscar nomination but was, was spoken about for one. Um, so that, you know, that, that matters. That makes a difference in the quality of the film. But the ending is atrocious. It is uh, uh, very bad. And even the the appearance of Freddy's Claws, which delighted me as a young lad uh, watching a horror film, uh, could not save uh, what what felt like it, it just a dreadful third act. Mike? Mike? I would say uh, the, the first eight films are clearly Friday the 13th movies. This one is, to my mind, a 90s film with a little Friday the 13th cherry popped on the top this Sunday. It is the Katamari Damacy of, 90, uh, of early 90s horror filmmaking. It just kind of swept up everything that was both good and bad about that era of horror filmmaking, and it's all just kind of concentrated in one place. The references, the tropes, the ideas, and everything else. And it's, you know, no other Friday the 13th movie... Could you so thoroughly remove Jason Voorhees? I mean, this could be an alien. It could be, uh, you know, ghost, any other serial killer. 
I mean, this really felt like, you know, it was a, a spec that it's like, yeah, could we make it a price thing for me? And um, this is what you get. And um, I mean, it's not impossible to get a decent movie out of that. Um, and there are a couple of like Hellraiser direct video sequels I actually really enjoy that kind of plays that role. But this one, it's like, uh, it's very much, to my mind, important as a relic of the time. It is a footprint between then and now. You know, the, you use the word relic there, and my phrase that I was going to use is curiosity piece. Mm. And they're very much the same. For me, this one is that rare bad movie, and it is a bad movie. Let's make no mm-hmm. mistake about it. Sure. But it's a rare bad movie that, like, I could see again. I enjoyed it both times. I find it very uh, entertaining on multiple levels. And for me, this is the only bad Friday the 13th film that I can say I'm genuinely, I have a fondness for. And like, I enjoyed the hell out of talking about Jason takes Manhattan and, you know, five is howlingly bad, but I don't want to see either of those films again ever, (laughs) but you know, this one, like, I think it, it really does kind of have, its place in the Pantheon. Uh, And so I appreciate it for that. All right. Well, that was it guys. Thank you so much. Uh, I think we covered that in sufficient detail. We'll see you next time. Everyone. If you haven't already rated our show on iTunes or on Stitcher, please do so. If you haven't already liked us on Facebook, on the group page, It's always Friday, the 13th group page on Facebook. Please do so. We really would appreciate it. Gentlemen, see you next time. Rock on, dude.